Welcome to the mine. We are so glad you're here. Yes. Uh, folks, again, I just want to tell you I appreciate you guys coming out every Tuesday and, and uh, being here in this room and all of that. And uh, for those of you that are here, uh, you know, you're wondering, okay, where's the worship? Because every Tuesday we're having worship, right? Well, uh, Brian had other commitments and Seth is sick, so, uh, and you don't want me to do worship, so uh, we're just going to do a little bit more Bible tonight, okay? And uh, I know, I know, it's a bummer, and, um, but we'll just pray that uh, Seth and uh, Brian, one of them, can be back with us next week, all right, for, uh, for our time together, because we really do appreciate that. All right, guys, uh, real quick, too, before we start tonight, uh, just a couple other things. First of all, again, I just want to encourage you to keep coming and keep praying because uh, I'm just praying that uh, we'll get a bigger room and be able to grow, grow, grow. But I want you to continue to come and bring your friends. We'll find room for them and uh, we'll just see what happens and what the Lord does. Um, Obviously, I guess we all don't have to be reminded before we dive in tonight, too, that this is the sixth anniversary of 9-11, and I just sort of wanted to just take a moment and just have sort of a moment of silence tonight and then some prayer, just to, just again to remember um, all those who, uh, who were affected, and I guess we all were affected, but certainly some more than others. For those of you that know us and know where we came from, I pastored in uh, upstate New York uh, for 10 years before we moved out here, and we actually had some families uh, from our town, and then we had some uh, firemen and policemen who actually went down to Ground Zero that we you know, worked with after the fact, so it was really close to us, and of course, Lisa and I grew up uh, not too far from the Pentagon. Uh, when we were growing up. So we were affected by that. And then we went, we didn't uh, live obviously then too far from that field in Pennsylvania where Flight 93 went down. That is uh, near Somerset, Pennsylvania. And uh, I went to Penn State University. And so that was very familiar to us too. So we were very much affected by that in a lot of different ways and for a lot of different reasons. And I'm sure you guys were too. And so let's just take a moment and... uh, just sort of have a, a moment uh, of silence tonight, just remembering all those. And uh, then I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive into some real good stuff tonight. Amen? Amen. All right. Lord, uh, we just want to come and humbly just just be before you tonight and just ask that you would just fill us up. Um, God, we come to you as, as, as a people who, who just want to continue to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And God, uh, we just pray tonight that you would just meet us here in a special way and that as we leave here tonight, that we're going to be different leaving here than when we walked in. And uh, that we'll know that, that God and, and us, we did business here tonight. God, we pray that we would just allow our hearts and minds to be just totally open to your Holy Spirit and allow him to work through the word of God. And uh, God, we just pray that you would encourage us tonight. And God, on this sixth anniversary uh, of 9-11, we just wanted to take a moment and pause and reflect and remember all those who died that day and all those who helped that day and all the heroes 
not only of that day, but Lord, of many days after. And uh, Lord, help us never to forget. And help us also, Lord, to never put our security and stability in this world, in anything on this earth, but help us, Lord, to put our security and stability in the Lord Jesus Christ. As the psalmist David wrote, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And Father, I pray that our trust and our confidence and all of that, Lord, would be in You. And Lord, each and every day that we live, that even though, Lord, we do live in a dangerous world, and we live in a world of uh, uh, lack of stability and a lack of security, Lord, help us to have the peace of God that passes all understanding. Help us to be able to maneuver and navigate and walk through this life, Lord, with our head held high, uh, just with the hope that we have through Christ. And help us to be a great testimony of the strength that a personal relationship with Christ can give. And God, just build into our lives once again tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Just pretend that Seth or Brian just got done singing, all right? That's what you can do, all right? Just got done. You just sat down, and here we go. All right, let's go. Um, The study of the book of Romans is a study about what does a life defined by God look like, all right? What does a life defined by God look like? Because we saw in chapter 1, verse 4, that Jesus Christ was appointed the Son of God with power. And that word appointed in the Greek language is the word horizo, where we get the word horizon from. And literally what it means is that Jesus Christ is a dividing line of history. He is also the defining line of history. Every human being who's ever been born has either in a sense been on this side of Jesus or on that side of Jesus. And we've even seen in history that we divide our time by B.C. and A.D. Jesus Christ truly divides humankind, divides humanity, and defines humanity. So the book of Romans was written to show us then what does a life defined by God. If I allow God to define my life, what's it look like? Beginning in Romans chapter 5, you'll notice that Paul says this. He says, for those of us who have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we ended here last week, and we talked a little bit about this, so I just want to sort of pick it back up here this week. First of all, uh, I hope that every person in here has been declared righteous by God. And you say, how do we do that? Well, he said, by faith. By trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, I can come into a right relationship with God through Christ by faith, by simply believing in Jesus Christ and what He did. And when I do that, the Bible says that God declares me righteous. Alright? I am positionally in a different place with God than before that event took place. So the moment I accept Christ, God declares me righteous. And then part of the outgrowth of that new relationship that I have with God, you'll notice, is this peace with God. So important. God wants His children to have uh, a life of peace. He wants us to be able to lay our heads down on the pillow at night and know that between us and God, everything is okay. And we always say this too, that if I have peace with God, then I can also experience the peace of God that passes all understanding. But I won't be able to experience the peace of God that passes all understanding if I don't have peace with God. So I have to enter into uh, a relationship with God first 
be declared righteous, have peace with God, and then the outgrowth of peace with God is going to be the peace of God. Now, as again, as we said, we live in a world of turmoil. We live in a world of inner turmoil. There are people looking for peace. They're looking for tranquility of mind, peace of mind. They're searching for that all the time. And the Bible says this kind of peace can be ours and, and it can be something that defines who we are and, and, and sets, sets us apart, distinct from the rest of the world around us. And God wants you to experience and enjoy that peace tonight. That's part of what a life defined by God looks like. Then you'll notice as we move on to verse 2, here's another great result of being declared righteous by God through faith. That then we have access... Notice Paul says, we have through the Lord Jesus Christ, also we have obtained access by faith into this grace into which we stand. Access. Now, this just, this encourages me, and I hope I can convey, and it's hard sometimes to even put in human language all that's in my heart, but here's the great thing. When God declares us righteous, immediately, folks, immediately we have access to the God of the universe. Now, you think about that. I couldn't go down to Washington, D.C. tonight, knock on the gate outside the White House and go, I'm here to see President Bush. And they'll go, so is probably a lot of other people, but sorry, you know. I have no access to the president. I have no access to world leaders. I have no access to the important movers and shakers of this world. But I have access to the God of the universe. And I have access to the God of the universe every day, every hour of the day. He welcomes me into Him and into His presence all the time. It's unbelievable. And, and why we need to stop for a moment and just sort of camp on that is because a lot of the language here takes us back to the Old Testament. And what we have to remember, what a great privilege we have as New Testament believers over the Old Testament believers, is most of the Old Testament believers never had access to God like you and I have it today. In fact, in the Old Testament economy, only one person, once a year, had the kind of access to God that you and I have on a daily basis. He was called the high priest of Israel. And once a year on the day of atonement, he would go in with the blood of the sacrifice and he would place that blood on the Ark of the Covenant as an acceptable sacrifice to God. And that Ark of the Covenant symbolized the actual presence of God. And so the high priest went in once a year. You and I, folks, can go in all the time. And so... Paul's saying here, guys, this should define our lives. The fact that we have this kind of unlimited, continual access to God. Don't take the ability to pray to God and to enter into His presence lightly, but also take advantage of it in the right way. Realize that this is a huge privilege that God has given us through Jesus Christ and we have access. This was greatly illustrated when Jesus Christ was crucified. And the Bible says in Matthew 27 that the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. And literally, it was like God giving mankind a picture, especially of Jewish people at that time, the fact that the, the way was no longer barred by some curtain or some wall, 
But because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, if you and I come through Jesus Christ, we have access. And you also notice, he says, we have this access by faith. Just like we were declared righteous by faith and trusting in God's Word, we have access by faith. In other words, we just have to trust that God welcomes us into His presence and believe that He does and believe that if I want to go into the presence of God, that He's not going to shut the door and go, uh, I don't have time for you. Or, uh, I'm on the line with somebody else. <laughs> or God's up there texting somebody and He can't talk to me right now. No. See? God is going to give you His full, undivided attention all the time. Now, I realize, I can't explain that. Because obviously that's beyond our human comprehension. If I give somebody on earth my undivided attention, then I'm not being able to give everybody else my undivided But God is God. And God can give each one of us His undivided attention, and it's all because we have access to Him at any time, at all times, through faith, just trusting that I can go into His presence. And that should define our life. Our life should be defined because here's the thing. No human being can spend time in the presence of the God of the universe and ever be the same. It don't, it don't happen. If I'm spending time in the presence of my God, I will be changed. I will be a different person. My attitude will be different. My speech will be different. My goals will be different. My perspective will be different. I will be different because I'm going in and I'm being changed by the very presence of God. That's why I share with people, listen folks, God encourages us to pray and to go into His presence. But a lot of times when we think of prayer, we think, I'm going to God to get some things done that I want done. And it's not that God doesn't want to answer our prayers and do things for us and all that kind of stuff, but the main thing God does when I enter into His He changes me. He may not change my circumstances, but He's going to change me to help me manage my circumstances. That's the kind of God I have, and that's why I need to go into His presence, and that will be something that defines my life. Not just the peace that God gives me. Remember, Jesus said in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation and trial and all of that, but in me you can have peace. Be of good cheer, He says to His disciples, I have overcome the world. And if you and I believe that Jesus Christ has overcome the world, then we believe He can overcome anything in our life that's a barrier between us and God. And all we need to do is go into His presence. And then I love this. Notice, that we go into His presence, obtaining access by faith into this grace. This grace in which we stand. Grace is something else that needs to define our life. God's grace. A lot of people have a misunderstanding about God's grace, but my definition of God's grace is just God's enablement. It's just God's enablement in my life. Whatever I need, God's grace gives me what I need. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God I am what I am. That's why when Paul had this thorn in, in the flesh and he went to God and he prayed three times, God, will you take this thorn in the flesh away? God came back and said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient. And so one of the reasons why we can then take this access to God is because when we go into God's presence, guess, guess what we get? We get grace. And grace should be something that defines my life. I don't have to live this Christian life in my own power, in my own strength. I live it by the grace of God. That's why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4.12 says, Let's come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain help and find it when we need it. 
Again, it's, it's sort of intertwining this concept of prayer and going into the presence of God and going to His throne and obtaining grace. Obtaining grace. God, I need Your grace. I need Your power. I need Your enablement, if you will. You see, God never asks us to do something that He does not enable us to do. And here's the other cool thing about that verse. Paul says that we have access into this grace in which we stand. Now, the reason that's important is because in the Greek language, it's permanent. My state can change. My standing in the Greek language cannot. So what Paul is saying to the Roman Christians, and he's saying to us is, that access into this grace is always going to be available to the child of God. It's not like a few weeks God's going to give us that access into His grace, and then a couple weeks later we go, we need His grace, and God goes, no, 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 no. It's not available anymore. Every time we go by access through Christ into the presence of God and seek God's grace, don't forget what Paul teaches then in Romans 5.2, We stand there. In other words, it's a permanent offering of God to His children. And that should define our life. That should be some of the things that define our life. Now, notice this. He also goes on in verse 2 to say this, And we rejoice in the hope of God's glory. All that simply means is, again, here's something else that should define my life. That I live my life knowing God wins. God wins. It's it's going to be the way God wants it someday. That that the way things are on this earth isn't something that's permanent. It's only temporary. Yes, God has allowed man to sort of do his own thing. But one day, Revelation says the kingdom of this world is going to become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He will reign forever and ever. So I don't have to worry about the fact that, you know what, things aren't going to... Yeah, they're going to change. And they're going to change for the better one day. And that's why Paul says, I can live every day that even I I may live and, and what I'm experiencing or what the world is going through can be a lot of yuck, but that I can still wake up every day with joy knowing that the hope out there is that things are going to change one day. And one day God is going to rule And one day there is not going to be any more sin. And all of that, that's what he's saying here. We can rejoice in the hope of God's glory. When Paul says in Philippians, one day every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. So every day, even though my, my day may be a particularly bad day, but I can keep reminding myself, God's glory is coming. This earth's going to become the kingdom of Jesus one day. You know, I'm not just looking here. God wants us as Christians to be able to lift our heads and look forward. So often we allow the things of this world to beat us down and to get us to the point where even as God's children who reign, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, we reign with Christ and Christ wants us to reign, that our heads begin to sort of droop. And we're, we're looking down instead of looking up. And that's why I love the Old Testament picture in the Psalms of God coming along and lifting people's heads. It's almost like He senses when we're discouraged and He wants to come alongside our life and He wants to lift us up and get us to look to the future and say, look, folks, it's not always going to be this way. 
It's not always going to be like this. I've got to let some things play out here. But I'm not, I'm not uh, unfaithful towards my promise. My promise is I'm coming back and things are going to change. And that's what Paul says. And then I just want to get to this one last thing before I stop for a moment. Then we get to something real practical and hits really home to us. And that's in verse 3. Not only this, Paul says, but I can also rejoice in sufferings? Okay, Paul, I was okay until we got to that point. But here's the thing. Notice what Paul says to the children of God. He says, we can rejoice in sufferings because of what we know. And what do we know? We know that God teaches us that anything that He allows a child of God to go through is not purposeless. There is a purpose for everything that I will go through in my life. And everything that God allows me to go through is going to be to build me up, not to tear me down. That's why he says here, I can as a Christian rejoice in sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance character, and character hope. God is going to build into my life a strength that would not be there if those things would not come into my life. And again, I've got to remind myself of that continuously. Because if I don't, my sufferings and the way of the world and the things in the world will begin to get my head to start drooping. And God says, lift your head, child of God. You reign with me. You are a prince and princess of God. And here's what you know and can know. First of all, whatever comes into your life that you need help with, you have unlimited access. And you have access into that grace that can enable you to handle no matter what comes into your life. And then beyond that, he says, here's something else. Don't forget that things aren't always going to be this way. Look to the future with hope. Hoping in the glory of God. And then when we do go through tough times, remember that those struggles and sufferings and trials and all of that are only allowed by God to build us up. And then I love verse 5. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You see, the problem is... That when I do suffer as a Christian, I can begin to doubt God loves me. And that's why he connects verse 5 with verse 4. He's saying, look, Christian, the purposes of God are never separated from the love of God. So if God is allowing something, always know that he loves you more than you'll ever know. And those two can never be separated in God's mind, his purposes and his love. So even though we're going through a time of suffering and humanly we're going to question, well, if God really loved me, he would. Paul says, wait a minute, Roman Christian. When you were declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus Christ, God poured his love into your heart by the Holy Spirit, meaning that we have unlimited love in our lives. You see, a Christian technically can't say God, that person's really hard to love. Can you give me more love so that I can love them? I've heard Christians pray that. God, they're hard to love, but just give me more love, God. Just give me more love. And I'm like, sometimes I get the opportunity to to go up and share verse 5 of Romans 5. And I said, can I just point out something really cool that I think will encourage you? You never have to pray that prayer anymore. And here's why. 
Because when you became a Christian, God gave you and I all the love we'll ever need. It's not that I need God to give me more love. I just need to use the love that God gave me through the indwelling and empowering of the Holy Spirit. The problem is I don't want to walk in the Spirit and allow the Spirit of God to empower me to love as God's already given me love. I'm like, no, God, I need you to give me more love. But I did want to point this out. God's purposes are never separated from His love. Now, let me show you this real quick, and then I'm going to stop. Keep your finger in Romans 5. We'll come back there eventually. Go to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. I want, to, I want you to see this by example out of the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Because you know what? We all need to be reminded of this. There have been times in my life where I was going through something, and I was like, there, there is no purpose for this, okay? I'm just telling you, God, there's no purpose for this. And there's no way you can love me if you're allowing me to go through this. And of course, again, I'm not walking by faith at that point. I'm walking by feeling, right? It, it, it's how I'm feeling. And God says in His Word, the just shall live by faith, not by feeling. Now, God doesn't want us to be unemotional because God built us with emotions. All God says is for the Christian... Our emotions should always be driven by our faith, not the other way around. Our emotions shouldn't be on top of our faith. Our faith should be on top of our emotions. Let me just give you a real quick childhood game illustration, all right? Rock, paper, scissors, okay? I always understood the rock crushed the scissors. That made sense. I always understood the scissors cut the paper. That made sense. It never made sense that this little thin piece of paper covered my rock. It's a rock. It's a ro rocks are stronger than paper. And that's exactly what we as Christians do when we allow our emotions to be driving us through life rather than the rock of our faith. And God says, no, it needs to be the other way around. Our faith needs to drive us. All right? And so I was walking by my feelings as we can tend to do rather than by just trusting God and His Word. Now, John 11, the story of Lazarus. Now, a certain man, Lazarus, was sick. He was from Bethany, the village where Mary and her sister Martha lived. Now it was Mary who anointed the Lord with perfumed oil and wiped his feet dry with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the Lord's sister sent a message to Jesus. Lord, look, the one you love is sick. You're going to begin to notice the word love here because God wants to make it very plain that Jesus loved Lazarus and loved the sisters. All right. Uh, when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness will not lead to death, but to God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So here's the purpose. We've already established God's love, but we also now have a, a purpose established. And the purpose is that Jesus Christ is going to be glorified by this. Now, verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So once again, the Bible is reminding us here that God's love and God's purposes are always intertwined. Now, where that gets hard to swallow begins in verse 6. So when he, Jesus, heard that Lazarus was sick, he remained in the place where he was for two more days. Basically, if you read on, until he died. And everybody's scratching their heads, including his sisters, going, Jesus, if you would have just come whenever you first heard about him being sick, you could have healed him and he would have never died. And I'm sure they began to even think in their own hearts, well, Jesus, then you don't really love us. Because if you would have really loved us, you would have come and healed him before he died. I don't think I have to go through the rest of the story. You know the story. 
Yeah, Lazarus did die. He'd been in the grave for several days. But who's greater than death? Jesus. So what was a big deal that he died? Jesus just went up to the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. And here comes Lazarus back from the dead. Because it was to glorify, it was to show everyone there. I am the Messiah. I do have power. I am the one the Old Testament scriptures predicted. You can believe in me. You should believe in me. It was a clear sign. And John wrote this book of John so that these signs could point people to the reality that Jesus was who he claimed he was. The very Son of God. The Messiah of God. So here we go. Here was a situation in their life. God had a purpose. The ultimate purpose was to bring glory to Jesus Christ. That's usually the purpose of God. Now, many times that may mean that we go through times where personally it may not be a good time for us, but if God's getting the glory, if people are being reached with the Gospel, if Christians are being strengthened in their faith, then again, it's not always all about me and how it affects me, but I never can conclude that God doesn't love me because He allowed me to go through that. You see, Lazarus couldn't come out of the tomb and go, well, Jesus, if you'd have loved me, you'd never let me die. You know? <laughs> now, I will say this. The bad thing about people being around when Jesus would raise people from the dead is they not only had to die once, they had to die twice. I mean, we fret over dying once. They had to die again, you know? At least they probably knew what it was like. You know, a lot of people, even Christians, it's the whole thing about the fear of the unknown. I don't really know what's on the other side. Well, let me say this, okay? Here's the hope God gives us. We don't know all that's going to happen the second we die, but I do know this. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. That's what I do know. And I do know that the thief on the cross, when he placed his faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus said, Lord, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So, you know, that's good enough for me. All right? Um, so, uh, you know, death was there, but God's glory was there and God's glory overshadowed the death of Lazarus and God's love overshadowed the death of Lazarus. And we've got to remind ourselves of that as well. God's purposes and God's love are always intertwined. They're never separated. Never, never, never. Back to the book of Romans. All right. So before we move into verse 6, comments, questions, thoughts. Question, why did Jesus weep at the tomb of Lazarus? My own understanding of that passage is even as the Son of God, who knew He was going to raise Him from the dead, that that whole, that whole concept of death and the result of sin upon His creation hit Him. And he allowed it to hit him with full force. It was like, here, here is God, and God is life. God is not death. And here, because of sin, is just right in front of him the result of what happened to his creation through the entrance of sin into the world. And Jesus let that moment hit him. Hit him right, slap him right in the face. And I think that's a good model for us, because I always tell people, when you've lost someone close to you and you're grieving, don't try to like push it down or suppress it. That's the worst thing we can do. Or stuff it. Like Jesus, let the full force of that loss and that grief come over you. That is actually the path to healing. 
not trying to pretend like, you know, it wasn't any big deal and I'll get over it and, and you know, that type of stuff. No, don't, don't use that kind of self-talk and self-medication. Be like Jesus. Let it hit you full force. And I, I think that's the reason he wept. Yeah. Good question. Yep. Now, it's a great point. In fact, you'll notice at the beginning of verse 5 of Romans 5, he says, hope does not disappoint. And he's saying biblical hope, real hope, the kind of hope that God wants to give his children that define our lives, we'll, ne- we'll never get to a point where we go, eh, I wish I wouldn't have trusted Christ. You know, <laughs> this, this isn't really what I thought it was going to. No, we're never going to get uh, biblical hope. And I, I want to just take a moment because this is important because hope is one of those other things besides grace and besides peace and besides the access that we have to God that's going to define our lives is hope. And let me just again say, and I say it in a lot of my studies, is the way the Bible uses the word hope has to be distinguished from the way we use the word hope in English. Because when we use the word hope in English, we use it as it's a wish, but we're not sure. In other words, I I hope I get that promotion at work, but we're not sure we're going to get it. So we sort of use it as a wish thing. The biblical hope that the Bible talks about is absolute confident expectation. It's not a wishy-washy hope like I, it might happen, it might not. No, no, no. It's an absolute confident expectation. Well, how can I have that kind of hope? Because my hope is based on the character of God who cannot lie, and my hope is based on His Word that is faithful, and that's why I can have that kind of hope. Because I know it's going to happen because God said it's going to happen. That's how I can have that confident expectation. That's how I can have that stability and that security in the midst of a world of no security and no stability, you see. Because I have an anchor. And my anchor is that hope in God, in His character, and in His Word. And that's why Paul says that kind of hope will never disappoint you. You'll never get to heaven and go, well, this just wasn't what I thought it was going to be. In fact, not getting ahead of myself just a little bit, since I thought of this, can I give you a good verse? Romans 8.18. Romans 8.18. Here's what Paul says. I consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. He's saying, Jeff, with your little puny human brain... You try to think what heaven's going to be like and how glorious it's going to be and being in the presence of Jesus and righteousness and all that. He said, you can't even imagine. When you get there, it's just going to be like, we are just totally, I think, just, it's going to be beyond. We're probably all going to just sit there and go for a while. You know the song, I can only imagine what's it going to be like when I stand before Jesus Christ and they go through, you know, the different scenarios of, you know, how people are going to react. I think for me, based upon Romans 8.18, I'm probably just going to be dumbfounded for a while. Oh my goodness. I thought heaven was going to be great, but this is just beyond anything I could ever imagine. And, and, and this is mine to enjoy forever? You're kidding me, right? I mean, this doesn't end. It's not like Disneyland where I get on the tram and have to leave at the end of the day, you know. I can stay and keep riding the rides over and over again. Yeah. Wow. 
I love verse 18 of Romans 8. It is such an encouraging... You, if you have a day of suffering, and here's all Paul's saying, and here's all God's saying, God is not minimizing our suffering, folks. Don't make any mistake about that. God is not saying, oh, what you go through is no big deal. He's simply comparison here. And he's just saying the weight, the weight of how glorious heaven is, is so far beyond no matter what suffering you and I go through down here that it can't be compared. So if you and I think we suffer a lot, he's just saying, well, just wait till you see what kind of glory is. As I share with people all the time, remember something. If you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, this earth is the only hell you will ever know. And if you are not a child of God, anything good that you can soak up and grab on this earth is the only heaven you will ever know. Because Jesus says, you have your reward. That's it. That's the perspective God wants his children to have. That's the hope that God wants them to have. I saw a hand. Yes. You mean I have made heaven look so good, right? That you're just like, wow. You know, I... No, I, I can answer that. I'm going to answer that, okay? And not... not yeah. <laughs> Thank you for talking him off the ledge, right? Um, <laughs> no, I'm glad that it's that appealing. I really am. Seriously. If I can just go back to Colossians. Paul says, set your affection on things above, not things on the earth. Too, too many Christians, you know what our problem is? We've got our, our fingers and our toes and... Everything we've got it all down here on this. We're grabbing stuff down here on this earth, like we're going to have this is this is what's really important. No, as Paul said, we came into this world with nothing, and we're going to leave with nothing. So let's lay up, as Jesus says, treasure in heaven, and let's set our affection there. You know, you used to hear the old saying, "Well, you're just so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good." I'm sorry, that's not biblical. First of all, I've never met a Christian who's so heavenly minded that, that God couldn't use it back. To me, the Christian who's heavenly minded is going to be the Christian who's making the biggest impact on because they're going to be living for glory and living for eternity, not living for the here and now. But to answer your question, here's why we take our blood pressure medicine and wear our seatbelt. We do so because God has a mission for us while we're here. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, I think, we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We are His representatives. And here's the cool deal. It's not that God doesn't want us to look forward to what's coming, but guess what? He wants to use our life to make such an impact while we're here that we can bring other people with us. And not only that, but guess what, folks? There's a lot of Christians who, yeah, they're going to heaven, but they need encouraged. They need their head lifted up. They need to be restored in the hope that God wants them to have and be reminded of the access and the peace and rejoicing and all these things. They need to be reminded of that. I don't know about you, but I have never met anyone in my life who said, Jeff, you don't have to encourage me for the next three months. I have had my... Fill of so many people have encouraged me. I don't need encouraged. I have never met anybody like. Are you overly encouraged? You know, 
you know, you're going to stop, uh, you know, because it's just like, God, I just, you know, I, I can't be encouraged anymore. No. So we have a mission. And, and though God wants us to look forward to heaven and that glory that awaits us, it's beyond compare. God says, but while I have you here and while your heart is beating, make every day count to let me use your life to touch other people's lives. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. But that's a good question. Good question. Anything else? Because I got more. <laughs> all right, let's go on. I'm sorry. Back to Romans 5. From the lesser to the greater. So Paul goes on to say, okay, God then, there's no doubt God loves me. And I just, I got to, I got to, by faith, just accept God's love for me. He will never love me any less than He does right now. He will never love me any more than He does right now. There's nothing I could do to cause God to love me any less. There's nothing I could do to cause God to love me any more. His love is agape, supernatural, unselfish, unconditional love. And then Paul goes on to say, if you still think God doesn't love you, remember this, verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person perhaps someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Wow. If you ever doubt God's love for you, remember, when you and I were far away from God and we were helpless, that word in the Greek simply means there is no way we could bring ourselves to God. There was no way that we could build ourselves up to build a relationship with God. If God did not reach down and pull me up, then there was no chance of me ever knowing God. That's the kind of love that God had. The kind of love that reaches out. God wants our life to be defined by a love that reaches out to those that maybe in their life they're helpless. Folks, I run into helpless, hopeless people every day. I'm sure you do too. In fact, you don't even have to talk to them. You just look at them. You know they're helpless, hopeless. They just have this... It's just awful. And you just want to go up and give them a hug if you thought they wouldn't slap you. You just want to say, you don't have to live one more day like that. Let me introduce you to Jesus. It's so sad. But I love this. Paul then begins to use this phrase that he uses throughout the rest of the chapter 5, and I'm just going to touch on this tonight. It's the phrase, much more. And what Paul begins to say in verse 9 of Romans 5 is, no matter what sin has done in your life, no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter what past failures you've made, uh, no matter what you think you gave up, no matter what you think maybe, well, because I've got to become a follower of Christ, I guess I'm going to have to give that up. Here's what Paul says. He says, whatever you and I think we gave up to follow Jesus Christ, Christ gives us so much more in return. That again, it's beyond compare. Notice this phrase he uses over and over again in verse 9. Much more than because we've now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from God's wrath. Verse 10. 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more since we've been reconciled will we be saved by his life? Look at verse 15. For if the many died through the transgression of the one man, how much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, multiply to the many? Verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one man death reigned through the one, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ? Again, we've already touched on that verse a couple weeks ago. God wants you to reign with him. Reign with him. And we're going to talk about that. And then finally, verse 20, where sin increased, grace multiplied all the more. Greek, much more. Five times. In Romans 5, Paul uses that same phrase in the Greek language, much more, much more, how much more, how much more, to remind us that no matter what we think we gave up or lost or even what was behind us, Christ is going to give us so much more. And Christ can even be able to begin to wipe the pain and the past and all that away because it's so much more than what was back there. And that's what he wants us to see, how much more. The other thing I want to mention that's very important in the scheme of the book of Romans. When we talk about reigning, remember the context, folks. We're talking about the fact that as the child of God, one of the things that defines our life is when we became a Christian, the power of sin was dethroned in my life. It no longer has to be my master. I am no longer, according to the Bible, enslaved to sin, having to obey sin. Because now the power of Christ in me is greater than any power of sin or temptation. And therefore, as a Christian, the old master or king that reigned over me before I was a Christian has been dethroned. Now, it's still in my life. I still have the flesh. I still have the old nature. But it doesn't have the power over me that it used to because of Christ now in my life. It's been set aside. Now, I can still follow it. I can still listen to it. But all Paul is going to tell us here in chapter 6, 7, and 8 is I don't have to. Because it's been dethroned. And a greater power now has been put in my life greater than any power of sin. To be able to help me to get victory over that. Because anything in my life that is a barrier between me and God, God wants to get rid of. Because God wants to have fellowship with His children. And if there's a sin in my life that is keeping me from having intimate communion and fellowship with my God, He is sure to want to get rid of it. And He can give us the grace to get rid of it and the power to get rid of it. And that's why He uses that phrase in verse 17 that by this gift of righteousness we can reign in life. He's not talking about reigning in eternity in heaven like, well, the only time I start reigning is when I get to heaven and get my little crown and wear, you know. No, no, no. He says we can reign right here and now. We can begin to see the power of sin defeated in our lives on an everyday basis. And he's going to tell us how we do that in chapter 6, 7, 8. You want to talk about some practical stuff? Hang in there with me for the next couple of weeks because we're going to get into some of the most practical chapters in all the Bible that I think will not only encourage you, but maybe for some of you, you will look at your Christian life completely different from here on out and it will be in a good way. It will be in a positive way than the way it's been before that. But I set all that to set this up. In order for that to happen, this old power of sin to be dethroned and this new power to come into my life, I need a realm change. 
I need to go from being in just the kingdom of sin and all of that and unrighteousness to being in the kingdom of righteousness with Jesus Christ. So God had to, in a sense, change the realm. And He takes me from this realm and He places me over here into this other realm. Now, just like a slave, and, and when this book was written to the Romans, these people saw slaves being traded every day in Rome. And just like a slave, a slave could have had a master who freed them. And therefore, if that master freed them, that master no longer has any authority over them at all. They're free. So what God is saying here in this illustration and how He's going to amplify this, we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, is this. That's the sad state of many Christians who Jesus Christ has set you and I free from our master called sin, and yet we still listen to Him as if He has authority over us. And God says, how sad. You don't have to listen to that master anymore. Because through Jesus Christ, you and I have been set free. And therefore, that master of sin has no authority in our lives anymore. So why are we paying attention? to that authority. That's where Paul goes beginning in chapter 5, verse 12 all the way through the end of the chapter. Because what he does is he takes Adam and he takes Christ. And he basically says, are you an Adam? And are you listening to the old master of sin? Or are you in Christ? And you now have a new master to listen to who is your authority over you. That's why then when you get to verse 20, this great verse again that we touched on a couple of weeks ago, Paul says, folks, I don't care how big sin has got a grip in your life, God's grace is greater than any grip of sin. And if you and I again just go to the throne of God and ask Him for help that we have access to at any and all times, God will pour out His grace in our life so that we can begin to see this grip that sin has in my life loosened and to where we begin to see victory rather than always seeing defeat. That's why then when you come to chapter 6, Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to remain in sin so that grace may increase? Absolutely not. So he's been talking so much about grace, 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 and here's where even Christians get this, well, if, if I'm under grace and... God's going to forgive me of all my sins anyway, then why don't I just go out and live however I want to? Doesn't that make God's grace just work all the more? Make Him look good? You know, Paul says, Paul uses the strongest language he could use in the Greek language when he says, in our translations, certainly not or absolutely not. Absolutely. It's a total misunderstanding of grace. You see, God's grace isn't a license to allow me as a Christian to go out and live however I want to, God's grace is given to me so that I can live to the glory of God. It is, it is His grace that sets me free to live a life to honor Him, not to do whatever I want to do. That's a total misunderstanding of God's grace. That's why we have to teach people in churches who come to Jesus Christ that when we talk about God's grace, God's grace isn't this license to just, well, since God's already forgiven me anyway, I'll just... Do whatever I want to do. That is a total lack of appreciation for God's grace. That is taking advantage of God's grace in the wrong way. You and I don't like to be taken advantage of. 
You, you and I don't like to be not appreciated, feeling like we're taken advantage of. That's exactly what Christians do with God's grace whenever we consider the fact in our minds, well, I got saved by grace anyway. It wasn't by anything I did. And God's going to already forgive me anyway or already has. So what's the big deal? What's it hurt? God, where's our love for God in that kind of an attitude? That's why he says, that's not the perspective that someone who's defining their life by God and by his grace should look like, you see. In fact, then notice what he says in verse 2. How can we who died, past tense, to sin, live in it? You see, he wants us to understand as Christians this very important principle, and I'll probably be stopping here in just a few minutes, uh, seeing if there's any comments or questions, and then wrapping it up tonight. Very important principle that we need to understand. If you're a Christian, you've got to understand. I have to understand. I died to sin when I accepted Christ. It no, meaning, it no longer has to dominate my life. It no longer is my master. It's no longer the thing that I have no other power in my life to be able to overcome it. No. I died, past tense, to sin. The moment you and I accepted Christ, when God changed that realm of what we live in, in fact, you know what? Keep your finger there. Go over to the book of Colossians. Holy Spirit goes, ding! Here's a verse, Jeff. Take him to this verse. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. This verse not only embodies the whole passage about the realm change from being in Adam to being in Christ, but also tells us why he did it. Notice in Colossians 1.13, Paul tells the Colossian Christians, He, God, delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son He loves. There it is. I was in the kingdom of darkness before I accepted Christ as my Savior. When I accepted Christ as my Savior, He took me out of the kingdom of darkness and put me into the kingdom of the Son He loves. So that, notice, I would be delivered from the power of darkness. So that now, because I'm in a different realm, so now that I don't have that master sin that's my authority in my life anymore, but I have Jesus who's my ultimate authority, I don't need to obey sin anymore. I don't need to go there anymore. I have a power greater than that. It's all in our mindset, folks. It really is. If you go back to the book of Romans, that's what Paul wants to get us to see. Look, Paul or I am not saying that, okay, being that I've died to sin means that I can't sin. That's not what that means. But what it does mean is that sin doesn't have to dominate my life anymore. Righteousness can be what dominates my life. And it really is just that perspective of, if I go into the day defeated, guess what? I'll probably flesh out defeat. But if I go into the day looking at it more positively and victoriously, it's probably going to end up that way. So, for the Christian, here's Christian number one, A, okay? He goes into the day with this attitude. Well, yeah, I know I'm a Christian, and I know I have a power greater than sin, but I'm human, and I know I'm going to sin anyway, so. That's that example. 
And that's the way a lot of Christians go into their day. They have just sort of settled down and just sort of said, well, you know what, I'm human, I know I'm going to sin, so... And that's the way they approach their day. But here's another example. This is Christian number two, who says, here's how I approach my day. No matter what I face today, I have a power greater and able to overcome what I'm going to face today. That's the attitude that they go into the day with. Same, I mean, they're Christians, okay? But one goes into the day with sort of the attitude of, they're already defeated. Because I'm, I'm going to sin anyway. The other one goes into the attitude, not so much focusing on the sinner and the old flesh and stuff that they have to battle with, but they're focused on the power of God that's greater than that. What are you focusing on? What am I focusing on? And I'll guarantee you this. You begin to focus on the fact that you are dead to sin and it doesn't have to dominate you and you've always got a power in your life that's greater than anything you will face. I guarantee it will change the way you live on an everyday basis. How do I know that? I'm an example of that. There, there were many times in my life where I would tell you I was defeated. And I would go into the day defeated before the day ever started. And when these truths in the book of Romans truly grabbed a hold of my heart and mind, I began to see victory rather than always seeing defeat. I began to see that some of those things that were always holding me back from what God wanted in my life were no longer holding me back. And it was almost like an unconscious thing like, wow, that... Where did that go? And it was almost like God just said, I just took it away. Because instead of focusing on that, you focused on me and on the power that was greater than that. And that's what Paul's just trying to get us to see here. He's just saying, folks, be reminded that whatever you and I face, through Jesus Christ, we have a power greater than that. Let me just share a couple other verses with you. Look at verse 6 of Romans 6. We know that our old man was crucified with him so that the body of sin would no longer dominate us. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Look at verse 11. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the outlook. That's the outlook that a life defined by God is going to have. It's the outlook that is a conscious thing. It can't be this passive cruise control Type thing. It's got to be, I wake up every day considering this and reminding myself that I have a power available to me and in me that is greater than anything that's going to hold me back. And I have to consciously do that every day. If I do that, guess what? Things are going to start changing. Because no Christian can put their life on cruise control and expect to end up Becoming all that God wants us to become. Speaking of cruise control, I have to share this before I open it up. You guys heard about the Stella Awards? The awards is like the, the woman years ago who got burnt by McDonald's hot coffee because it was hot. These bizarre stories. Yeah. Well, the latest one is a gal from Oklahoma bought an RV. She was a big Oklahoma University football fan, so she took her RV to the Oklahoma football game, and on her way back, 
she put the RV on cruise control and then went back to the back to make herself a sandwich. Oh, it gets better. Needless to say, the RV went off the road, flipped and all this. She was okay, all right? But she sued Winnebago because they didn't put in the policy manual that if you didn't put it in cruise control, that didn't mean that I couldn't go around the RV and do things. Guess what? A jury in Oklahoma awarded her $1.7 million. I know how to get ahead in life. Just be stupid. You know what, guys? That wouldn't honor God. I would rather be who we are as the children of God. Because, again, I'm not living for this world. I'm living for the world to come. But anyway, there's a story. Don't put it on cruise control. Okay? Christians who put their lives on cruise control and go back to the back and make a sandwich, it never works out. Okay? And God won't reward you for that. Okay? Y'all are going to be going, I can't believe that. Yeah, that's really true. When we abuse God's grace, we not only obviously hurt ourselves and our relationship with Him, but you're right, we damage so many others who look at our lives because of the fact that we abuse God's grace and use it as a license to sin rather than as a power to holiness and righteousness. And you're right, it's very damaging. Yeah. Yeah, crucify with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Yeah. Yeah. Guys, I hope when you leave here tonight, you're encouraged because you know what? If you're a child of God, you've got a power greater than anything you're going to face tomorrow, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, until you get back here next Tuesday. <laughs> And then we're going to learn more about all that God has for us in the book of Romans next Tuesday that I think will also be very, very encouraging to you. Guys, I love you. You're great. Let's close in prayer. I'm going to let you go five minutes early tonight. Hey, there's a first for everything, all right? You know. yeah. Lord God, thank you so much for just sharing this truth with us. God, you don't want to see your children live as slaves when we don't have to. We need to be reminded that you have come to set us free, to live a life of freedom. And and freedom doesn't mean, God, as we've seen tonight, that we live however we want to, but the freedom you give us is to be able to live as you want us to, a life that brings honor and glory to you. God, help us to be free. Free because, Lord, we are relying upon Your power, Your grace, that we have access to all the time, every day. Help that to define our life. Help us, Lord, as we've talked about today and as people have shared, that people are watching our lives. And, Lord, what a great testimony to live a life of peace, a life of grace, a life of hope in this world. A life, Lord, of stability and security because our security and stability is in You and You alone. God, encourage us, we pray, and continue to take the verses and the passages we've looked at and just continue to saturate our minds with these things so that, Lord, throughout this next week, 
I'm sure some of us are going to face some tough times. But Lord, even in that, help us to continue to rejoice in these sufferings that we go through. Knowing, knowing God, that they're producing something great in us that, that helps us in eternity. You're building into our lives. You're not destroying our lives. And your love is never separated from your purposes. God, remind us of that as well. Go with us from this place. Take us home safely. Encourage us this next week and bring us all back together again next Tuesday night. Once again, to dive into your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, I love you. You're great. Have a great week.